everyone, and welcome to this episode of our Business in Focus podcast. I'm Marina Morris, a director at PwC, and I'm your host for this episode. In a year like no other, understanding what CEOs see as their biggest challenges and opportunities can provide us all with essential insights. And to help us do just that, we've just launched our 24th annual CEO survey. It's a big moment in the calendar here at PwC, and I look forward to reading it every year to find out what matters to CEOs and how they're planning for the future. In this episode, we're going to be discussing some of the challenges that CEOs are facing at the moment and what their priorities are for the coming months. And I'm delighted to be joined in our virtual studio with Amanda Blank, the CEO of Aviva, and Kevin Ellis, PwC's UK chairman. Hi there, Kevin. Hi, Amanda. Hi, nice to see you. Great to see you. So, um, Kevin, I'm going to kick off with you. So our CEO survey shows that there is confidence that the crisis has bottomed out and a majority of CEOs expect the economy to improve this year. So alongside looking for operational efficiencies, it's clear that CEOs are also prioritising investment in digital transformation. So it'd be interesting to get your thoughts around why do you think that is? Yeah, certainly the CEO survey was really quite positive. I mean, the UK CEOs are more positive than the international CEOs, possibly led by the uh, Brexit deal at Christmas and the vaccine rollout. But that positivity really comes in, it comes through, and it's quite contagious, I think, that kind of confidence. The digital transformation story, I think, links to the fact that, like all CEOs, everybody wants more for less digitised. And that is driving a lot of behaviour. Also, everyone wants more insights. So a business like ours going through the pandemic, when trading was tough at the start of the pandemic and we were all kind of getting to grips with the situation, we took a lot of confidence from our CRM system because that was giving us data about an uptick in order book and therefore an uptick in sales that gave us the confidence to see ourselves through. So everyone wants insights and everyone wants more for less. And therefore having a digitized system, having, having the right kind of transformation that gives you the system so you can drive your business through the windscreen of the vehicle rather than the rear view mirror is really, I think, what people have both learned through the COVID times, but was coming at us anyway, even before COVID hit. Really helpful and it's sort of at heart of competitive advantage, isn't it? Um, so moving on, so the number of CEOs looking to drive revenue through mergers and acquisitions is up marginally on last year, interestingly to see. So 39% compared to 32% in 2020. What role do you think deals will have in the UK's recovery? Yeah, again, what's happened here is that this is obviously a health crisis and not a financial crisis. That makes it very unique. So we went into this crisis with, I think, $2.6 trillion worth of capital available looking for a home. Uh, And that kind of dry powder has meant people have been out there looking for deals. Uh, The UK was one of the earliest deal markets to take off. It was kind of first in Europe, really, as we saw it from our deals practice behind Asia. And people were looking to reshape their businesses. They were looking to grow. And they're also fear, the fear of missing out was driving a lot of activity. Uh, And also at the same time, the UK uh, uh, exchange rate was favorable as well for people wanting to invest in the UK. From the UK point of view, it's really important. Because at the same time as we were coming out of Brexit and looking for new trading partners, at the same time, we also needed to kind of kickstart an economy coming through COVID. And one of the ways you kickstart an economy is through foreign direct investment. So the deals market was kind of driving that foreign direct investment. Again, the stability of seeing a Brexit deal done, however however skinny it was, was critical in that. But also... um, the vaccine rollout, again, shorts, gave people the feeling that confidence is on its way, the, the tide is turning, 
there's a light at the end of the tunnel coming towards us. Let's get our money spent. Let's get in a position to kind of grab the upside. And I think, you know, when you look around the market that um, we're seeing that all the time. I mean, Amanda, you know, you've been in position now for nine months uh, and you certainly haven't sat on your hands as far as deals are concerned, have you? Uh, so just talk about how you've, what you've been up to. Yeah, so look, we, I mean, I think what we did was um, four weeks actually into my role, we set out a strategy last year around focusing the portfolio uh, of Aviva. And, you know, everybody was a little bit sceptical that, you know, was this the right time to be doing it in the middle of COVID and with everything else that was going on. But actually, we have found that exactly as you say, you know, the the deals market is buoyant and we were able to find really good homes for the businesses that didn't fit our strategy anymore. You know, so we were looking at and Kevin, you remember this, you know, I guess in the 1990s, early 2000s, insurance companies were putting flags all over the world. And, you know, what, what I think you see now is more of a focus on the markets where you can really believe that you can win. And I was reading a stat this morning, which said 70% of the deals that have been done in 20, you know, in the last 12 months, over a billion pounds have been divestments. And I think, you know, in insurance, I think that's, that's interesting because, you know, it is, I, I think we're not alone in looking at you know, really focusing our effort and attention on where we actually can win. Yeah, I think that focus is probably the big message around all the deals we're seeing. I know a lot, yeah. a lot of people out there that I'm talking to are kind of now thinking, actually, I can get real value for this part of the business, not because it's a bad part of the business, but it doesn't really yeah. fit my next five-year strategy. It's obviously what's kind of driven your activity. Yeah, and, and, you know, we also were looking at things like volatility. So if we were looking at, at, at Europe, where we were in guaranteed interest rate projects, where the volatility was high, when you've got a low interest rate environment, you know, for, for us, it was a case of actually there'd be better owners for these businesses. They were great businesses, but just they didn't fit within our risk appetite. And so, you know, it, it did make a lot of sense for us. And we were able to to execute fairly quickly. Interestingly, I think that perhaps because of COVID and you're not spending so much time on planes, um, maybe, maybe there's more time for the meetings, you know, to uh, to get the deals done. I don't know. <laughs> Simplistic. That makes sense. So I'm going to move us on now to another big issue coming out of the CEO survey around cybersecurity. So 91% of CEOs are citing it as a major concern, making it second only to pandemics and health crises. So how do you plan to stay ahead, um, Amanda, of the latest cyber threats this year? Yeah, I mean, it is, cyber is a big issue for everybody. I mean, it's a big issue for our customers. It's a big issue for, for us. It's also obviously a big issue for the regulators when they're thinking about what, what, what risks um, we're susceptible to. I, I think the report in January 2021, the FCA reported, I think, £78 million that had been stolen in clone firm investment scams over the last year. And we also know that these, you know, these types of scam are on the rise. That's really worrying. I think, you know, it's worrying for for insurers where you know people give their money to us and they believe that they're going to be protected, you know, and and they trust the brand. And and if somebody's pretending to be you or anything like that, you know, that's really a concern. Our own fraud report last year said one in five people had been targeted by a coronavirus scam. So you know what we see is even in these difficult environments, you know, people are opportunistically thinking that they can take advantage of, of, of vulnerable customers. So we take it really seriously. I would say it was right up there. So I would agree with your, I would agree with your survey. 
Um, and you've got to make sure that you really look after your customers' data. It's, a, it's really serious. And of course, we've got specialist teams working around the clock to uh, to de detect and respond to cyber incidents. And this is not, of course, just a UK thing. The threat can come from any country, anywhere, at any time. And the more that we go digital, to go back to your very first theme, you know, the more susceptible you become to those attacks and therefore the more aware you have to be. I feel we could do a whole podcast yeah. episode just talking about this but I'm going to move move us on now so Kevin over back to you and um, there's been a lot of discussion recently about the UK's future role in the world especially us after leaving the EU what do you think makes the UK an attractive place to do business well it's always been attractive because of history you know both time zone and language uh, and the kind of culture here and the, the trained workforce has always put us in a strong position I, I think there's another factor here as well which we're very focused on. I touched on it earlier with the foreign direct investment. And we've got to have the right level of regulation, the right level of trust and control, but not too much red tape to make it unattractive. And that came through, I think, very strongly in the CEO survey. Um, but the, I think for the, the big thing is having that trained workforce and an environment where you trust the regulation, you trust the rule of law. And therefore, if you're putting your money to work in an investment or a deals-based way, you know that your investment is going to be well looked after by the kind of rules, regulations and culture of that country. And what can we do in the future to ensure the UK continues to be an attractive destination for foreign investment and an effective trading partner with major economies around the world? Yeah, there's some massive mega trends going on at the moment in the world. Uh, and it's really a question of making sure as a government, I think, that you kind of oil the wheels of the changes and happen naturally. And I think it really goes down to the kind of, we're in this fourth industrial revolution. Uh, and we know that 30% of the jobs that exist today will be re replaced by machines and robots. But at the same time, those very machines and robots will create another 30% of jobs. So you, but you can't walk from one kind of job to the other. You have to be retrained. So although the market will retrain, the more the government can oil the wheels to improve that reskilling so that people can move into the jobs of the future, the kind of sunrise jobs and out of the sunset jobs, that will be a big factor. Because I think one of the attractive things about the UK is the ability to have the skills and the trained workforce where you want to invest. And that I think goes to, I think the green agenda. We know that if the UK are gonna hit their fledges in terms of net zero, uh, then I think we've got to effectively retrofit all the houses in the UK in terms of their energy use. That's gonna require about 500,000 new jobs to be created in that space for that retrofitting to happen. Now, I'm sure that will happen, but if you want it happening on time and you want to lead the world in it and attract investment, the more that we can oil the wheels of that reskilling for those sunrise jobs, okay, move those jobs out of the kind of fossil fuel, in fuel in industries, then that will help. So I think it's about making sure that we have the right trained and skilled workforce to attract the money that will come into this country alongside the historic advantages we've got through language, time zone and rule of law. Great. So Amanda, moving on to you now. So we talked a bit about the UK's changing role in the world. So now thinking about the future of financial services, how do you expect the UK's FS sector to evolve over the next few years? And what do you think the key opportunities are sort of building on what Kevin was talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think the the really key point that Kevin uh, raised there was around ESG. And, you know, the, the, I think this and the recognition of the importance of sustainability 
you know, to, to the government, to business, to customers. I think we, we we cannot underplay that. I mean, you've seen so many announcements in the last few weeks, of, you know, Viva's own announcement, but, but many others. And this real important move to a more sustainable world. You know, we know for, as an insurance company, you know, if the world keeps warming at the rate it is now, then there's no such thing as an insurance company as we go forward. So this this is a trend, which I think, you know, is, a, is also an, a business opportunity. So, you know, Kevin talked about retrofitting houses. Of course, you have to retrofit businesses and pro properties as well. You know, everything is going to need to be, to be thought about. And this transition from one economy, as, as Kevin was talking about, to another, is important for everybody. I mean, it's important in the levelling up agenda in the UK. Um, it's important in the sort of building back better uh, environment. And I think the, the role that insurers have specifically in that is huge. You know, if we think about our balance sheet, you know, we have a massive opportunity to invest in UK infrastructure. And we can invest in UK green infrastructure and we can really aid this transition. So I am super optimistic about the role that, you know, we as insurers can play in this transitioning of the economy from where it is today to where it needs to get to, you know, and 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 taking the businesses out of London, really transitioning. You know, I'm from the Rhondda Valley in South Wales, a coal mining area. You know, that 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 whole um, area needs to be redeveloped and you need to be thinking about new skills, new things for people to do in some of the new industries that Kevin just talked about. And I think that, that that's, a, that's a big opportunity. So, you know, I think ESG is really important. Of course, the digital opportunity is, is also the other massive um, opportunity for us. And what we've seen with COVID is an acceleration of that trend towards digital. We've all learned to work in a new way. We've all learned to do business in a new way. We've all learned to buy things in a new way. I, I don't think that's going back. So I think as organizations, we've really got to push that forward. And I'd like to pick up um, around that ESG agenda. So you talked about the announcement, obviously, that Aviva made at the beginning of March around becoming the first major insurer to set a target to shrink its carbon footprint to net zero by 2040. Clearly, as, we, as we're saying, you know, we, you're not alone in identifying climate change as an important risk. We've watched it rapidly climb the agenda within our CEO survey with 70% of CEOs citing it as a concern this year compared to 44% two years ago. So it'd just be really interesting to hear your perspectives on what made you decide to set those demanding climate targets. Yeah, I mean, look, I think Aviva has always had this at its heart. So it was one of the first organisations to, to start becoming active in terms of shareholder voting, um, looking at its own operations. And, you know, we have car, car, uh, solar carports in uh, Perth office, which have been, you know, which have been long in the planning. So I think we've always had this as part of our DNA. But when I looked at the plan that the business had to take us to the next level, it was about last September. I said, look, you know, it's just not good enough. We need to be way more demanding of ourselves than this and not sell ourselves a target that's going to be easy to achieve. And look, being net zero by 2040, and we've said we'll do that with all of our investments, with all of our operations, uh, you know, and, and from our underwriting perspective, these are this is a big target for us. But we we thought we had to do it. You know, we saw it as a huge responsibility that we had as the UK's largest um, insurer. So I think that um, it is something that we've set ourselves, you know, goals, steps along the way. 
it's it's clearly a big strategic issue for us. We're going to be judged in our LTIP by, uh, by the performance that we make on, on these goals. So we sort of put in where our money where our mouth is, really. And we believe acting now is the right thing to do. Of course, I think that combines nicely with this year being COP26 and you know G7 and G20 all being in the UK. And I think the UK have a really, uh, you know, a really key role to play here and very excited about seeing how it all develops. And it really leads me quite nicely on to my next question. I want to talk about the value of purpose, really, and how it's come into the fore over the course of the pandemic, with many businesses taking more and more action to support their environment and their communities, more so than ever before. So do you think that this trend is set to continue and will last in 2021 and longer? Maybe, Amanda, if I come to you first. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think 2020 really underlined to us the, the importance of purpose. I mean, Aviva's purpose is, you know, with you today for a better tomorrow. And it's, um, I, I think that's a really strong, a, a really strong purpose. And it's why we exist. You know, if you think about an in, insurance company, that's what we're, that's what we're here to do. We contributed over 40 million to support community partners last year, whether it was health services, businesses, to our markets around the world, to the NHS charities um, in the UK. And, and, and the whole sustainability goal is around purpose. And, you know, so everything is connected, actually. You know, what we do in our communities, what we do in terms of protecting people when things, bad things happen to them, what we do around sustainability, all of these things are connected. And I think that means that people want to work for organisations like Aviva because, you know, our colleagues now are really selective about thinking about the type of business that they want to work for. And I think you know, we, we can't just walk past that. Yeah, I totally agree with Amanda. I mean, it's all connected. So it's really interesting. We do a digital annual report. And in our digital annual report, we include our diversity and inclusion statistics. And they go way beyond uh, any legal requirement. They include uh, our black employees, pay gap. They include ethnic minorities, as, as well as gender. And um, what's interesting is with a digital annual report, you can see what's read. And you won't be surprised to know that people read more about our diversity and inclusion they read about than they read about anything else in that digital annual report. It's what really matters to people. So going to Amanda's point, to be a successful organisation, the only long-term competitive advantage is your culture. And to have a strong culture, you have to have a purpose today. And it all links together, right from how you treat people in good times and bad times, or how you treat people in terms of who you recruit and who you reward in a fair uh, just society. And it isn't just about a societal good, it's an economic good, because you won't be able to attract and retain the top talent if you aren't living your purpose, because the people that see it most transparently are the people that work for you. So as I say, it, it is, and I think COVID in a way brought it to the fore, and it came actually out in the CEO survey, that actually UK CEOs were more concerned about their employees' well-being as both a societal and economic good than uh, our international colleagues. And I think that's come up across to me in all the conversations I've had with CEOs through the COVID crisis. They've, one of the first things they've talked about is how they've been looking after their employees. And I think it comes through in productivity, performance and retention, which are all critical for a successful business, as Amanda said just now. And that's in, that's really interesting, Kevin. It would be helpful, I think, to maybe focus on maybe two or three practical steps that you've seen that CEOs can think about taking or that you know they are taking to look after the well-being of their people, especially as we continue to navigate through these uncertain times. Yeah, one of the things that worked really well for us was um, 
personal resilience. We didn't know whether the Wi-Fi would work when we sent 22,000 people to work from home, uh, let alone whether they could be productive and effective. But we knew the only way they could do that is that they felt safe. So being confident about telling them their jobs were safe, being confident about telling them what we thought the future would be, and that the uncertainty they didn't have to worry about was their job and their paycheck and their mortgage. And then the second part of that was we then did regular live streams, bringing a psychiatrist together with me, answering questions on people's concerns, on well-being, on how you stay healthy, how you cope with uh, loneliness during the lockdown and things like that. Um, and if you like, in terms of whether it was the right thing to do, the first time we showed the live stream, we had 14,000 people watching it live. And that immediately kind of opened my eyes to the importance of well-being and the importance as an employer of taking that responsibility for your employees, particularly in challenging times. But I think coming back to the office will be nearly as scary as leaving the office because it's another big change for people, particularly when you've got a young workforce. And therefore, I think we need to carry on with the resilient support and psychological support of our people as we bring them back into the offices and they deal with another major change in their lives. Amanda, how has Aviva been thinking about this or planning for that? Yeah, so I think obviously um, it, 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 it's very similar to what Kevin was talking about there. And, and, and you, you understand that because really our people are our business, aren't they? You know, without them, we sort of, we don't actually have anything. People, you know, they pay their insurance premiums and then there is a promise that we will pay a claim. But it's, it, it's, it's a very personal thing, uh, service that we deliver. Uh, you know, we, we already do things like 35 hours for caring responsibilities, equal parental leave. These are all things that we do as a, as a standard. But generally making sure that people can thrive and be themselves at work is, I, th I think it's at the heart of, it's at the heart of Aviva. So for a last question for both of you, maybe if I kick off with Amanda first, how have the disruptive events of last year impacted your future plans for transformation and growth, particularly in relation to meeting the changing needs of customers? Um, so, uh, look, I started my role in the middle of a pandemic. It's the most strange experience, really, if you think about it. Um, it, it has really allowed um, me to think about different ways of working. But what it does do, without doubt, is it really makes you think about how do you deliver transformation and growth when you don't have people collaborating in a workspace. And I think that for me, it's really thinking about, you know, how has that slowed us down potentially in those areas and how can we accelerate that now as we as we go forward? I think the basics for customers haven't changed. You know, they want fair prices. They want a trusted brand that delivers on what it says it's going to do. Excellent service, ease of access. But actually, you know, doing it has been a bit harder over the last 12 months. So the, the, our, our focus now is really on simplifying the group in the middle of all of this, we've done the seven disposals in seven months. We now need to focus on the um, the businesses that we have left in the core market to make sure that we enhance our digital um, experiences, but pick up also on all of the other things that a good a good business needs to do um, that, that, that have been, I think, just a little bit difficult over the last 12 months. And Kevin, do you want to touch on the same question, but from a PwC perspective? Yeah, I think um, a lot of our organization is about training. Uh, you know, we probably recruit 4,000 people every year and lose 4,000 people every year. So we have a very fast turnover business. Um, and a lot of the learning of training comes through learning how to network, more importantly, observation skills. So although we've been very productive during the pandemic and we've been very effective as an organization, I do feel that a lot of our people have probably lost out in terms of observation skills 
and that will have a long-term impact on the business, but also they've lost out in terms of culture. We've recruited 3,500 people during the pandemic, and a bit like Amanda starting in the pandemic, it's not quite the same when you're not kind of together in an office, innovating, having a chat by the water cooler, having a chat by the coffee machine, and therefore that culture is critical to the organisation. So I think we do need to get probably the learnings from COVID, but at the same time probably get our people back into the office at least three days a week in a kind of blended working way so we can reinstall the observations and learning and rebuild the culture. Um, I think it's particularly relevant because for those 3,500 people that joined, they won't know what they're missing out on unless we explain it to them because they won't understand that the last year is very abnormal and normality requires a different kind of skill in terms of networking and observation and culture. So I think it's incumbent on us as the leaders and those that have been in the organisation for a long while to explain to them that actually they do need to come into the office and, and kind of navigate the world and, and socialise and mix and network in a different way and, and learn and, and benefit from that. Otherwise, in a couple of years' time, they might say, well, my career has um, not gone where I want it to. Why is that? And if we haven't told them, then that's our fault. Great. Thanks, Kevin. So that draws us to the close of another episode of Business and Focus. Thanks so much, Amanda and Kevin, for a fascinating discussion. And of course, thanks to everyone for listening too. If you'd like to explore our CEO survey findings or to read our one-to-one interviews with some of the UK's top CEOs, visit our website at pwc.co.uk forward slash CEO survey. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes. Thanks, everyone, and stay safe.